0: Loading Brian Sovereign 4.0 Private Agent Mnemonic Courier Verifying that all software is DAPS compatible Programs ready Loading Anarchism kernel Loading Tech news feeds Loading Secret history libraries. Loading. Hedonism theme. Loading. Cryptographic processes. Loading. Science software. Loading. Rationality and self-knowledge systems. Loading. Unimatrix Zero. Loading. Non-killing protocol. Loading. Open Source Sexuality subroutines. Loading. Triple Black API. Loading. Golden Stallion.RPM. Now ready for. Sovereign Deck.
1: up because, whoo, it's time for some more Sovereign Tech, baby. Oh yes, the Golden Stallion, the Man of Tomorrow, Savzu, the Rembrandt of the Podcast Canvas, oh ho ho, I haven't used that one in a while, is ready to go for one hell of an episode. Let's get right into it. No, 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 you know what? I'd like to take a moment to talk about myself because I am so excited That in the past month, maybe a little more, the listener numbers for Sovereign Tech have been going through the roof. Now, you know, Sovereign Tech isn't a show that relies on some big fancy network to get the word out. Yeah, I'm on some great networks. There's There's a couple of them. I'm on LRN. I'm on some others. And it's a real pleasure and an honor to be on those. But I'm not on, well... Why name them? But I'm not on some network where just because I'm on that network, somehow I get you know into the five digits of listens. I get into the four digits. I've been getting into the four digits for years. That's not a problem. And now I'm getting into the higher four digits, and I'm loving it. But now I want to get into the five digits, and I'm not going to do because I think there's a lot of networks out there—not not necessarily tech networks, uh, but well, maybe uh, you know, maybe not Bitcoin networks. But I think, honestly, I think they buy pl- they buy plays because you know you can do this. I get really annoyed by this. I I love authenticity. It's so key to me, and I you know I can when someone or something isn't being real. I can spot it from a mile away. And I think that there's there's certain networks out there that won't take on Sovereign Tech because oh shit, well that, that show's just that <laughs> that cold stallion, he's crazy. We can't let that on our network. This is a family show. Or this is a family network, right? I think they buy plays. I don't I don't I, I just I, I don't believe it. Because I'll listen to the shows on some of these networks, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, (laughs) like, how is this getting 12,000 plays? How the hell is that even getting 4,000 plays? Now, Sovereign Tech does it all on its own. No networks required. Like I said, the ones I'm on, I'm honored. Okay, but my numbers, they come come totally solo, and I love it. And I want to say thank you. To all the listeners, I know some of you share this show and they do it real quiet, like because Sovereign Tech is that real guilty pleasure in the tech world, especially. This is like, oh, yeah. Hey, 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 Bill. Did you hear what Brian Sovereign said the other day? Oh, man. Woo. Did you hear that moaning? I love it. So thank you to all of the Sovereign Tech listeners uh, for, I'm sure you're very instrumental in this show growing so much uh, in the past, uh, in recent months. Uh, not that, I mean, I'd do it if there was only one listener, <laughs> okay, because i do this for me, but it's a real honor to be reaching thousands of people, and we're approaching uh, the, a Sovereign Tech anniversary here very soon. Saturnalia, of course, is always the uh, the Sovereign Tech anniversary, and that is coming up, and I... Well, we'll see what kind of a good time I can have for that. But anyway, let's get into the tech news. Enough about that stuff. I I just it's a real honor to reach thousands of people every week. I love it. And especially without riding the coattails of some other networks and some other shows. But let's do this. A lot to cover this week. Of course, we always have a lot to cover every week. In fact, you know, <laughs> one more bit. Like, I get so much content. First off, thank you also to the Sovereign Tech listeners that send in stories and and things to talk about and questions and all that. Uh, But I, I get so much content. There's so many things going on now that I really could do this show twice a week. And I'm half tempted to do that. I don't know that I really have that in my schedule to be able to do it, but I'm half tempted Because there's just so much to cover. There's so many things that, honestly, you want me to talk about. Because you send me the stories. And I want to talk about it. (laughs) Because it's good stuff. But in any case, let's just get into what we've got this week. A lot to cover, but it's all gold. Some very, very unique topics, I think, uh, to get into. But one that may not be so unique. Because if you follow my work at zog.ninja, at the Dark Android blog, at the Zog blog, You'll already know about this. And this is the Amazon password leak. And what happened was, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, in fact, we announced during uh, during the, the the random access, which is where we, we cover some quick stories here before we get into our main story. And we've got a great one this week. But uh, last, maybe last week or the week before, in the random access, we talked about how Amazon finally put in Two-factor authentication uh, into their accounts. Now, ironically, just a few days after that happened, they revealed that there was a there was a huge password leak, and that they were emailing people saying, "Hey, you're going to want to change your password." Uh, and in fact. I'll give Amazon, I'll give the credit where the credit's due. Amazon did this right. They already changed the password for you and they just sent you the instructions and they didn't even send you a link to click via the email because you know how dangerous that can be. And they just sent the instructions saying, go to amazon.com, go to your account and get your, you know, change your password to whatever you want. Right now it's, it's set up as this, 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 this. So Amazon handled the situation right. But I think that they knew about that password leak long before uh they announced it and i think them putting in their two factor authentication uh was you know was really them like being very you know kind of proactive and and make and maybe to, to it's an attempt at damage control so i i have a full write up about this you can just you can go to the to zog.ninja there's a little search bar up at the top and you can just type in amazon password and it, and it'll come up and you can read about it uh, but i did find it interesting that the same day that this was announced, this was a Tuesday, uh, that they announced the password leak again just a few days before they put in two factor authentication. But on that same day, Jeff Bezos, who also owns Blue Origin, which is kind of a competitor to uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX, and they announced that they did the first, uh, you know, kind of uh, vertical takeoff and landing of a rocket of it. it So that the rocket could be reusable. Now, no one's ever done this before. NASA hasn't done it. Nobody's done it as far as we know. So this was really uh, earth shattering stuff. I mean, this is good. Like, it excites me that this occurred. You know, no doubt. I I love the fact when when space technologies get developed, because honestly, I think humanity is meant to be a multi-planet species. So, great. I'm glad that this happened. All right, I'm not taking away from what Bezos achieved here with Blue Origin and his, uh, you know, reusable rocketry. But, <laughs> I mean, I don't think you can... I find... Look, I, I know it sounds conspiratorial, but I, I people time... These big companies, not even big companies, sometimes small companies, they will time press releases. And I think that... The what happened with Blue Origin, you know, setting up the reusable rocket or proving the reusable rocket was designed to take the heat away from the Amazon password leak. And nobody's talking about the Amazon password leak anymore. And here's the problem with that is that I don't think people realize just how big a deal that is. And I talked about this in the story that I wrote up, because if Amazon can get cracked into. Remember, hacking is a heroic act, a crack is a malicious one. And if Amazon can get cracked into, they're, I mean, they're, they're top. You know, they're as big, honestly, they're as big as Microsoft, they're as big as Facebook, they're as big as Alphabet slash Google, they're as big as Apple. And if they can get cracked into, any of those other companies can get cracked into as well. It's not if, it's when. And Amazon proved the point. I mean, can you imagine, oh man, <laughs> there's a part of me that would love it. If somebody cracked into Facebook, you know, and, and they got all the passwords. And I mean, like the just the rampant uh, uh, social upheaval that would happen if, say, various people in relationships and whatever uh, saw what was actually being said in their boyfriend's or girlfriend's Facebook messenger. Oh, man, I, I, you want to see society crumble? <laughs> Holy shit. <I> mean, <laughs> there'd be slaps heard around the world. Keep that in mind. That's the moral of the story here with the Amazon password leak is that whatever you're doing online, it's not if, it's when. In fact, you know, there's an old saying that says the instant it leaves your head, assume that it's public. And maybe you want to, you know, maybe you want to think about things that way. Just a thought. Uh, So anyway, uh, yeah, the the Amazon password leak, like I said, Amazon did things right. If you haven't set up two-factor authentication, uh, for fuck's sake, do it now uh but but it's there and 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 it happened. Uh some people wanted me to talk about the Vtech crack uh as well. This is one where where children's accounts got cracked into. Uh, I am going to save that for another week, but that is a huge story uh with a lot of I mean, man, the implications of that are are crazy. Uh but let's get into something else. How about a little good news? A $5 Raspberry Pi. Can you believe this? They were giving this thing away in magazine subscriptions. computer. Now, it's not the most powerful thing on the planet. Uh, It definitely proves that, you know, over time things just get cheaper. I think the $5 Raspberry Pi, if I remember looking at the specs, is, you know, about as powerful as the original Raspberry Pi. Uh, Not as good as, you know, the the version B plus or whatever that exists out there now. Uh, But that's, that's pretty awesome. The fact that there is effectively a $5 computer. Now, keep in mind that that $5 computer is just a circuit board. Essentially. Uh, you know, it's, it's just the motherboard. And, oh, man. You know, side note here. I heard recently that there are, in Silicon Valley, that there's this, this major conversation going on about we need to stop calling. Okay, so with a computer, when you hook up multiple hard drives to a computer, the BIOS, or now it's the UFI. But the BIOS, which is the initial software firmware, you know, that 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 tells the computer, okay, we recognize this device, this device, this device, all the hardware that's in your machine. As I understand it in Silicon Valley now, okay, because in that in that BIOS, the way it recognizes and the way it labels multiple hard drives, it will say the you know, the primary hard drive will be or the main hard drive will be uh, the master. And then because what you'll have, you know, like you have an IDE cable or whatever, and, and this has still gone on with even like SATA cables. This used to be true with SCSI and all these other different versions of the cable that connects uh, the hard drive to the motherboard. And this, like I said, they call them master and slave. Okay. These two hard drives. There is apparently this movement in Silicon Valley now to change the name because master and slave is just so goddamn defensive. All right, look, <laughs> I, I, I don't mind, you know, I want people to feel comfortable. You know, I am definitely on board with the idea of like what you want to be called. I will call you that, et etc. et cetera. Uh, I agree that there are some terms, perhaps in language that would, uh, it would behoove us to get rid of them. But this is not one of those cases. This is just ridiculous. And this happened years ago. This is what made me think of it, because, you know, the Raspberry, the $5 Raspberry Pi, it's just a motherboard. I remember years ago, when I was working in the tech industry, that there was a huge argument, this would have been the mid-aughts, late-aughts, that you're not going to call the motherboard the motherboard anymore. Now we need to call it the main board, because motherboard isn't very sensitive. Yeah you know, and like I said look there's a lot of times where I can really empathize with this but no it makes fucking sense to call it the motherboard because everything comes from that everything comes out of that like, like I, there's it's it's just stupid to call it anything else the main board everything has a main board the gp I mean th- this is the problem is that like okay take your video card inside your desktop okay that what the gpu which is the processor okay what that plugs into Onto, you know, as far as just on the card itself, you're not connecting it to the desktop. All you're holding in your hand is a video card. That is called a main board. How are you going to differentiate between the motherboard and the main board of the video card? It's because you call it the fucking motherboard. Okay. When you have it on, on a separate peripheral that you connect to the motherboard, then you call it a main board. Like, it just makes sense. This is, <laughs> this is how you know... Uh, Otherwise, it's incredibly confusing. Now, some people will say, well, you could call it the primary hard drive or the secondary hard drive. No, 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 no. That doesn't work. That doesn't work at all. Because if you already look in the BIOS, you'll see that those words are already used, but they are used for separate channels of IDE cables or SATA cables. Like, uh, particularly with IDE, if you, you know, you'd have two channels, each ribbon cable uh, could have two hard drives on it. And you would, you know, the, the two hard drives, one of those would be the master, the other would be the slave. And then depending on which channel you're on, be it IDE 1 or IDE 2, you would call that primary or secondary. You have to use different terms. And I know that they're not going to go with primary and secondary, and they know that this is true and that this is a problem. Look, Let's not go this crazy to where we can't, you know, to where the word master and slave can't even be used anymore. I mean, honestly, even if you got rid of those words from the English language in general, then people would never be able to identify their relationship with governments. That they are the master and you are the slave. And that is an offensive relationship. The relationship between hard drives, they're fucking hard drives. Stop. So I, I I get annoyed by 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 that that whole thing. It's unbelievable. The attitudes in Silicon Valley uh are are mind-boggling. And I think I you know what I think it is. I think there's a lot of companies. I think they think that, well, okay, yes, if we address this whole master slave uh, uh uh you know uh issue conversation inside of the the BIOS of the Eufy or whatever, uh, then then maybe women will think we're actually creating some kind of change. Because believe me, there is a problem with women in tech. I mean, like they they are absolutely they are not uh, getting their due. That's a genuine issue. We've talked about it many times on Sovereign Tech. But I I think this is all like like semantics to make to make people think outside looking in that somehow Silicon Valley gives a shit. When the problems are much, much deeper. Uh, So anyway, I'm just I'm in awe that that's even a conversation and I will till the day I die. I will call the motherboard the motherboard. It's not the main board. If I'm talking about something else, I'll call it the main board because it just makes sense. Anyway, <laughs> it's not even worth me getting hyped up about. But these people are getting hyped up about it, so I talk about it. Uh, let's get into some other news. Uh, boy, here, here's one. Here's a, here's a doozy. The NSA, uh, just uh, I think this past Sunday, they are shutting down their mass data, uh, phone data collection operation uh they're shutting down actually their exact words were they are shutting down this program and this is the one that edward snowden warned about and that everybody's been kind of freaking out about and been wanting to uh regulate through the u.s freedom act etc uh but they were their terms were super clear that it was this program that was shutting down fortunately (laughs) because i listen to other tech news fortunately nobody is coming out and saying Oh, yeah, this this is great. This means that the NSA is no longer collecting our data. No, everybody fucking knows that they just replaced it with something else. And anybody that you corner, you know, kind of ask and say, no, no, look, tell me you think that they're not collecting data anymore. And everybody knows it's just not true. Uh, So this this news fell on effectively deaf ears. And I I couldn't be happier about that. I'm glad people are realizing, uh, you know, that (laughs) that what government says Often enough, just isn't isn't the truth, and you know, and and that they're looking for that very carefully worded language uh, this time around. So, uh, let's see what else we got. Telegram versus Facebook. Uh, this is something else I did a write up about at the Dark Android blog, uh, and this is interesting news. Facebook, the owners of WhatsApp, are now just in the Android version of the app. They are saying, you you know, like if you type in Telegram, if you, I think even if you type in the word Telegram. Uh, WhatsApp will change what it's saying. And if you put in a link to Telegram, say something you shared from Telegram there, because Telegram has their own little kind of like bitly where it's just like short link or whatever. uh, And it won't let it paste in. It'll just as I understand it, it will turn it into gibberish. I don't run WhatsApp because I don't want to give Facebook all of my metadata. Okay, so but I've seen the thing and and amazingly, people are like, well, this this sort of thing happens. It's not, you know, it's just a bug and it's only affecting the Android version. So, you know, there's no way that this is something that that was done across the board by WhatsApp. But then somebody actually looked into the code of WhatsApp. And they found specifically multiple lines, not just one. It wasn't some kind of screw up here. Multiple lines where the word telegram is listed as a bad actor. In the code. So without question, Facebook specifically said in WhatsApp, do not allow Telegram whatsoever. And I talked about this, I mean, you know, because there's a few different theories around it. There's the idea that uh, perhaps it was, uh, you know, maybe they were reacting to because, you know, with the Paris attacks uh, in, in November here or in we're in December now, but in November uh, there was the theory that, oh, or not the theory, but I guess there's some degree of fact behind it. But there was the notion that the terrorists used uh, Telegram. And so maybe Facebook was just reacting to that and saying, well, if, if terrorists use Telegram, we're not going to you know, allow Telegram to interact with our system, yada, yada, yada. Uh, that's bullshit because we've talked about it on Sovereign Tech. WhatsApp has been used multiple times in quote unquote acts of terror. So if the idea was is that they didn't want to empower terrorists, they would shut down WhatsApp. So I don't think that that's the deal. What I think is going on is that, as I said many times on Sovereign Tech, Facebook is is trying to create their own Internet. And so they are blocking any kind of competition. And I think this proves that Facebook sees Telegram as a real threat now. We've covered another thing we've covered countless times on Sovereign Tech because I, you know I I like Telegram. I've talked about using it for years on this show. Okay, uh, you know people talk about oh the encryption. It's not really encryption. Oh my God, how dare you use that? Don't don't trust your life. Blah blah blah. blah. You know and yeah, I know. I get it. Okay. I'm not going to argue with you about the question of of the encryption on it, but it is an alternative open source platform that people could take advantage of that they could use to get away from Facebook entirely. And in fact, the guys running it know a thing or two about how to make a quote unquote successful, uh, uh, you know, social media platform. And eventually, Telegram could become that. And I think Facebook knows that and they're scared to death. Of what Telegram can do, and as I've said also before, it's run by Pavel Durov. This guy's a full-on anarchist. He's the real deal. Of course, you want to use that. Don't forget about the whole encryption argument. Just consider it an alternative platform. Look, if you're not willing to use encrypted uh, uh, communications, well, then fucking get off the goddamned internet. If everything you use has to be encrypted, get off the internet. So Telegram is is totally viable. And I think Facebook is showing like I think their actions are proving the fact that they are afraid of people using this because it gets them. It gets them in the hands of somebody that's a that's an anarchist It gets people using platforms that don't play ball with governments. How about that? I think that's that's what's going on here. Uh, and, you know, and some people emailed me after I did my write up and said, yeah, but Facebook has a TOR site. Uh, they're using Moxie Marlin Spikes encryption in WhatsApp. Uh, they do care about encryption because I said that, you know, effectively, Facebook is it does not want a encrypted pro privacy world. Okay, they implement all that stuff, but all of that is about following your metadata across the account that you're logged into because you use Facebook to log into it. You use Facebook that you log into it with Tor. So what, you're on tour? Woohoo. They want to get your metadata. That's the point. That, that's why they, they've bought this entire and created this entire ecosystem so that they can see what you do with your account across these various things. Uh, and, and so, no, I know that they're using some encryption, but they're bypassing that by creating an account system that collects tons of data and metadata about you. So bullshit. Okay. in fact, it's even been proven. You know, remember I mentioned those acts of terror with WhatsApp? Uh, It's been proven that they they were tracked through WhatsApp. But if WhatsApp is using, you know, this grand encryption scheme, how the hell did these guys get caught? They got caught because of the metadata being collected that gets attached through that account. Can that happen with other messaging services? Of course it can. But I'm just saying, don't don't buy into this notion that somehow Facebook gives a shit about encryption and security. They don't. Their bread and butter is governments, not advertising their bread and but- I guarantee you that they are getting paychecks or some kind of subsidy or tax break or whatever by playing ball with the n s a and other alphabet soup organizations guaranteed and oh man, don't even get me into that letter that <laughs> that <laughs> that uh that Zuckerberg wrote to his daughter that that was. That was insulting uh, to see that thing. Uh, let's see what what other stories we got here. <laughs> God, I'm getting way off on on tangents here. All right, one last one. How about this? Uh, Yahoo. Now there's reports coming out that Yahoo may finally be on its. It might really be on its last legs, uh, and that Marissa Meyer is is getting the kick in the pants, and she's getting told you know you're you're out of here, and that maybe they'll even sell off Yahoo. Um. I'll I'll tell you now. There's there's also been reports recently that no, that's not actually true. That's not what's happening. Um, what I think's happening here, uh, you know, this is a, a no. This isn't what I think. I'm going to give you a theory that I don't necessarily believe all of it, but that's a possibility. And that is why would Marissa Meyer leave Google? She had the sweetest job in the world, and she could especially like with the plans for Alphabet to come up. Why would she go away from there? I think. And I hate to use this phrase. I think this is an inside job. I think Google, because I don't think anybody leaves Google. I've said that many times on Sovereign Tech. I don't think anybody actually like quits Google. I think you always work for Google in one form or other. It's a creepy ass, you know, cultish company. And I think she went there to run it into the ground. Because it's got nothing. And the ideas that it comes out with are crazy. And in fact, everything that Yahoo bought... Like Tumblr, uh, Flickr, and all this other stuff, that's all major competition for services that Alphabet slash Google has been trying to make a bigger deal. So I think she went in there, she bought out all this stuff because these acquisitions they haven't done anything. And Yahoo hasn't taken advantage of these acquisitions. I think she went in there and she was to, to run the company into the ground and buy as many competitors to Google's own services as possible and trash them. That's that's a theory. okay. I'm not saying I 100 percent believe that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that came out as true. No one else is saying that. But the Golden Stallions got the guts to do it. So anyway, uh, let's get into our main story. We've got it. We've got a great one here and we get to talk about really one of my favorite subjects, which is virtual reality. Woo! Right on. And (laughs) and here we go. We've got uh, this is from Wired and it's stop calling Google Cardboards 360-degree videos VR. Now, this is more than, than just about that. Th- this this article has an overall gist of the idea that, and this is something that other news sources have, uh, have talked about, saying that Google Cardboard is going to kill the, the, the viability of virtual reality before virtual reality can even completely be viable uh, because of its inferior quality. Well, I will address that. But I want to read this story and we'll go, you know, we'll address the points uh, that get made here, because I think there's there's something that a lot of people aren't bringing up about that whole about that whole idea that oh of Google Cardboard. This is going to get people used to shit VR. And so they're not going to actually want to use VR. Uh, but let, let's let's read on here. I love seeing people get excited about their first taste of VR, The sooner more people experience the transformative power of VR, the better. But if the high-powered desktop headsets that are coming next year are the main course for virtual reality, then viewing 360-degree video using Google Cardboard is an amuse-bouche at best. It's it's a decent first taste, but 360 video is as far from real VR as seeing the Grand Canyon through a Viewmaster is from standing at the edge of the canyon's south rim. With technology as potentially polarizing as VR, I worry the slightest hiccup will have a negative impact on people's perception and adoption of that tech. And the New York Times, giving millions of people access to the limited VR experience of Google Cardboard and 360-degree video, uh, would prove to be a surprising setback for the new technology because VR is tightly integrated with your sense of vision. Bad experiences have a real, physical impact on users. Unlike a web page where breaking design rules results in long load times, or a page that's difficult to navigate, breaking the rules in VR can induce nausea and even vomiting. And when bad design can make users physically ill, it's less than an inconvenience. It's a threat to the growth of VR itself. At the lowest level, VR uses an array of sensors to precisely track the movement of your head. The computer then perfectly maps your head's real-world movement onto your view of a virtual world. If you turn your head to the left in the real world, the computer exactly mimics your movement in the rendered world. When executed perfectly, VR tricks your brain into thinking that what you see is real, on both a conscious and subconscious level. It sounds simple, but perfecting the ex- execution has proven difficult. Uh, most people are highly sensitive to the slightest dissonance between the movement detected by their inner ear and the motion that they see with their eyes. The human brain is sensitive below the, uh, below the level of conscious perception. If your VR game or application consistently shows frames of animation that are off by a few milliseconds, many people will feel ill effects. The good news is the high end headsets have solved the motion sickness problem for most people. I've used the latest headset from HTC, HTC and valve and i oculus for hours at time at a time with no ill effects in recent weeks i put 75 people through a 15 minute sequence of demos in the in the vive or vive i don't know what i forget what they're pronouncing that is uh with only one report of minor discomfort the high-end headsets can track your head ori- heads orientation and position in space and their displays give the software precise control over the timing for display of individual frames you can only see each frame of animation when the image it contains accurately reflects your head's position. Unfortunately, phone-based headsets, including the Google Cardboard, lack these refinements, at least for now. There's a key point, Stanley breaking in. They can only track your head's orientation, not its position, and most uh, lack fine control over display timing. And even the best hardware in the world can't help your users if you break the cardinal rule of VR development. Never, ever take control of the camera away from the viewer. Change someone's viewpoint without them moving their head is a recipe for instant, intense motion sickness. So I want to stop there. Uh, There's there's more to read uh, in this article, but this is a real problem. And in fact, actually, when we had the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy on, which I know some of you asked, is she feeling better? She had a cold for the past couple episodes that she guest hosted on uh, and she is feeling great and she looks amazing. I mean, oh, God, does she look good? Uh, so, anyway, uh, yeah, there, there she is. Uh, so she's she's doing very well. But anyway, but she mentioned that, you know, speaking of, of her being sick, that she does when she puts on you know Google Cardboard because of course I test it often. Um, She does get that motion sickness. And in fact, uh, other, you know, others have mentioned to me that they feel that that kind of motion sickness when they, when they test out VR uh, in these, you know, more simpler uh, setups. Now that no doubt that has to get solved. Um, But one of the, one of the fair points I think that wired make made was that eventually phones will be able to solve this issue. Um, And you know, this is one that I I can't necessarily address that aspect of it. Yes, technology needs to improve uh, to where, you know, to where that doesn't happen. That is a genuine problem, uh, you know, is bringing on uh, that motion sickness. Um, but I think the technology will improve. I think that phones will get better. Their sensors will get, you know. Uh, More capable of where you could slide them into, say, the Samsung Gear VR, which is not as simple as uh, as Google Cardboard um, or that devices could be made with sensors in them to enhance and connect. Uh, You know, one of the key things actually that's happened here. Not just with Google Cardboard, I have more to say on that in a minute, Um, but one of the key things that's happened as late in smartphones, because I think this is, you know, if you listen to my life 4.0 talk that I gave at the Bitcoin Investor Conference in Las Vegas I said, the reason VR never took off before was because the infrastructure didn't exist. It was too expensive to buy in. And these big time headsets that solve these problems right now, even if the headset only costs $200 or $100, what it costs, what it would cost you to buy the computer that that headset could connect to gets into the $3,000, $4,000 range right now. So there's a huge barrier to entry there. Okay, and that's why the phone, I think, is so key, because that is infrastructure that everybody has and that a lot of people honestly can even get subsidized, you know, say even with their iPhone, they can get on that Apple plan where they get a new one every year and all this bullshit. Okay, Um, but what's happened recently and and speaking of the iPhone, this is this is going to be an improvement there, too, is now you're getting introduced into phones USB C as the connector USB 3.1 or whatever. And there's talk that the iPhone 7 is going to. Uh, like that, that they're completely getting rid of the, the, the one eighth Jack on it to where you won't be plugging in headphones. Everything will get done through, you know, a lightning two connector or whatever. Um, So my point being with that is that now you have the ability with USB C and perhaps an improved lightning. However, all that ends up working out, you can do, you can send, you can go the back and forth of data transmission between uh, a phone and another device is going to increase exponentially. This is why with like Windows Phone, okay, that uh, the continuum, okay, Windows 10 Mobile that has that continuum ability where you can just plug it into a dock and suddenly you have a full PC, you know, more or less a full PC experience once you connect it to a screen and a keyboard and all of it can be done through the USB-C connector, but it requires that USB-C. That's why this hasn't been done before because the, you know, the the normal USB, even if it was USB 3.0, uh, the, the, the connector, I, I forget the, what the term is for that connector at the bottom, not, not MPE, not MPC or whatever. But anyway, that, that connector at the bottom wasn't able to transmit or wasn't able to do more than one trick at a time, more or less. That's the, that's the point. And so now with phones getting USB-C and, you know, perhaps an improved lightning, whatever the case may be, now they can do a lot more and they can interact with other devices a lot more, like say this, the gear VR two or three or whatever that inside of that, you could pay the extra hundred dollars for that. That'll strap onto your head and then that can add on the sensors that would get rid of the latency problem that that causes the motion sickness and all that. That's a real problem. But I think that's going to be solved very soon, very, very quickly. And maybe even there's a there's a way to just add one of those sensors onto cardboard, uh, you know, somehow. I I, I don't know. There's there's ways, you know, to to do that. So I think that will get solved uh, phone side. And I think VR in many ways needs to happen phone side, not so much. PC side, but we can talk about that more in a minute. I want to read more of the story here. So it's going on. Uh, the problem with 360 video, the bad news for applications like the New York times VR application and 360 video as a whole is that it's impossible to avoid breaking this rule with a uh, 360 video, 360 degree video is inherently limited. And the, the rule is you can't take motion away from the user. Okay. Uh, 360-degree video is inherently limited, limited, and its problems are exacerbated by the uh, other limitations of phone-based platforms like Cardboard. But even on more capable desktop platforms, which support higher frame rates and positional tracking, you won't be able to get up and walk around in a 360-degree video. The cameras just can't capture the data required to allow that. Even if the director of a 360-degree film avoids doing something inexcusable like moving the camera, the slight lateral movements that happen when you move your head to look around can be enough to trigger motion sickness. Even if they were tracked by cardboard, which they aren't, 360-degree video cameras can't capture the data necessary to show you more than one perspective at a time. While the technology can handle some slight head movements, many people will still feel motion sick if they spend too much time in the headset. Uh, With VR-induced motion sickness, the effect starts subtle but is cumulative. What begins as a slight discomfort or even a feeling of unease will progress into full-blown nausea. Now, here, okay, here, here's the deal with that, with the 360-degree video, and maybe we don't even have to really, you know, read on anymore with this because there's some points I really want to bring up here. Uh, the issue with that, as far as you know, like a, like looking at it, watching it, like a movie. OK, or watching movies in general. Now, the New York Times 360 degree video thing, as I understand it, has actually been a pretty good success. Like people really appreciate what they're seeing. Um, I think we're going to find and I've yet to hear anybody and I listen to what was, was a Voices of VR podcast. Uh, you know, I, I look into tech news or, you know, VR news all the time, and I've yet to hear an interview with anybody that's in this space that can really tell you how they're going to do movies in virtual reality. You know, like like pre created films. How are they going to pull that off? And I would argue you can't. Like, maybe that's just something that's that's not going to work out, or at the very least, I haven't thought of it and I haven't heard anybody else who's actually I, you know, I do this for free. Okay, these people are supposed to get paid to figure this shit out. And nobody knows how what you know what to do, how to create a virtual reality theater experience. That as in you can go around 360 degrees and you can look around and whatever, Uh, you know, unless it's like, you know, one of those old tricks that people used to do with like the uh, the roller coaster ride where you feel like you're on a roller coaster and you really felt the motion and everything, which in that case, you wanted that to happen. Um, You know, as far as like, will there be a Mission Impossible 12 that will be in 360 degree video? Probably not, because otherwise, you know, why even have a director then? Because that's the point of the director is to, you know, get the concentration on the point in the film that that expresses the emotion and the point of what you're trying to say with the movie to the user. I don't think virtual reality films are going to be a reality. I don't think it works now. You can create spaces, you know, virtual realms within which to watch movies you know, and this is the thing that really excites me about VR. And this is something that companies are getting into. Hulu and Netflix both have virtual living rooms within which you can watch uh, movies. This will allow for, yes, this will allow for 3D experiences out of the gate. Say so you want to watch a 3D film. Well, if you're in a virtual reality living room or theater, then the 3D experience can happen in a, in a beautifully controlled way. OK, so so I don't I don't see VR films ever really happening. But now I want to address this issue of the idea that cardboard is such an, inferior, such an inferior virtual reality experience that it's going to kill VR. I want to talk about that right here. So first off, the amount of horsepower, we'll say, the amount of raw power that you need to create a virtual reality experience, um, key word on the experience there. I don't, I don't think things need to be photorealistic in VR. In fact, the most popular apps for Oculus don't look real at all and on purpose. You know, it's all about the experience. And I think, you know, uh, case in point, because that's that's what these people are saying is that, no, this this cardboard is absolutely inferior. People aren't going to go for it. And they're usually not bringing up the nausea. They're just saying that, well, it's not powerful enough to do what we want to do with virtual reality. I don't think that's true. And if anything, in the next year or two, phones will make that, you know, uh, meaningless because a lot of phones are as powerful as computers today. Uh, But consider the MP3. Consider the consider streaming services like Spotify and others, you are getting an absolutely completely inferior music experience. No question. It's in the math. It's a fact you're getting an inferior experience for a lot of reasons, including the fact that you can't look at liner notes and all this other shit, but nobody cares because they just want the convenience of that. They have the entire world's music collection in their pocket or they have their entire music collection in their pocket ready to go with, you know, with them wherever. And I think virtual reality is going to become such a big deal. Uh, and I mean, I could go, you know, I could wax pretty philosophical and poetically about where I see VR going. Uh, I mean, because this is going to change the human condition. Uh, I mean, people are going to want that experience to be available at any given time. They're not going to want to lug around a 50 pound, you know, desktop. To, to be able to do this. And they're not going to want giant clunky headsets uh, you know, to, to be able to do this. They're going to want it in their pocket. I think cardboard cardboard is the MP3 of VR and MP3 is still king, baby. It's still king when it comes to music. Yes, there's improvements that that can happen. And actually, I mean, things like gear VR where you can just spend, you know, another 50, 60, 70, hundred dollars uh, to get the experience to get a, a superior experience on your phone. Yeah, that's that's really where it's going to be at. No doubt. OK, but I don't buy this idea that somehow people are going to see cardboard and they're going to think it's crap. Uh, nobody cared that, you know, the, the lack of quality that they got with an MP3. Uh, you know, I mean, the most popular MP3 kilobytes was well, 128K. Right. And I mean, and that, and that and in some ways, that's a terrible listening experience. Uh, take phone calls themselves. Phone calls. What they run at like 12K. I mean, it's terrible, but people don't don't run away from from phone calls. It's all about the convenience and it's all about the experience and things don't have to be in the highest definition for that to happen. Okay. If people were that, you know, hyped up about that shit, then honestly, when it like, when it comes to something like music and believe me, you know, your oral senses, a U R a L are just as, just as important as your visual. Okay. And if if something sounds, you know, way too bad, like, that's definitely going to take you out of an experience. So I think that, it, you know, you you can compare these two things. And if people were that hot and bothered, oh, no, it's got to be a perfect experience and all this stuff. People would still be buying vacuum tube based, uh, you know, stereo systems to get the absolute 100 percent best sound. But they don't. They use their, you know, they use their smartphone or whatever and and, and they listen to to the shittiest sounding stuff. So I, I don't buy this whole notion that cardboard is going to kill, uh you know, VR before it can even take off. No, 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 no. This is the introduction. Uh, this is I mean, cardboard is the iPod that maybe that's the best example. Cardboard is the iPod of the virtual reality movement of the virtual reality you know market coming uh, because, you know, the iPod, like I said, that's the thing that made people think that smartphones were really viable. Really, I have I, said this many times in cyber tech. It's not the iPhone. The iPod was was what brought on the mobile revolution because people could bring their most personal experiences with them in their pocket. Especially when they added video to the iPod, uh, you know, and podcast started, and then you could you know learn from this little you know this little device uh, and all and all this. I mean, it, it's game changing, and I think cardboard is still that. And I totally agree. There needs to be an improvement in low cost. Phone-based virtual reality experiences. It's a great point to bring up, and I'm so glad uh, that that the story was forwarded to me. But I think that that's going to get solved really fast, and the sol- and, and the solution all comes with the connector. It comes with USB C. It comes with Lightning two or whatever it is that they're theorizing is going to be in the iPhone seven. I wish it would just be USB C. It'd be nice to have that kind of uniformity going around. Uh, that's that's where all of this is really going to get solved. There's there's plenty of processing power in phones. I think to to do an experience, and again, it's all about experiences. It's not about high fidelity. It's all about the experience. And I think there's plenty of power. I mean, my Zenfone two has four gig of RAM in it. That's plenty to do, you know, a very interesting uh, uh you know experience like that. And in fact, Samsung they've already come out with a web browser, Firefox. We talked about this over a year ago. Firefox already has their their virtual reality version of their web browser. These things are ready to go. And they're going to happen. And it just needs a couple little bits of extra technology that already exist. And it's just going to take time for it all to, you know, to hit the market. But I think it's going to happen. Cardboard is going to be huge or the Gear VR from whatever company. It's going to happen. Hey, I want to tell you about something. It's a website called LibertyMemes.com. It's a site that was established recently by voluntarists for voluntarists. And also for the purpose of helping spread the message of liberty. What's more important than that? Many of the memes at LibertyMemes.com are not only extremely entertaining, but also quite informative and convincing in the cause of promoting liberty and libertarian ideas. I need you to go to LibertyMemes.com, that's Liberty M-E-M-E-S.com and find a few memes that speak to a part of the message of liberty that you associate with, and share those memes using the easy share bar located at the bottom of the screen. And LibertyMemes.com is a mobile-ready website. That means regardless of what chromed robot turd of a device you're slinging around, you can access it. Of course, I suppose you don't have to visit LibertyMemes.com and share their memes. You don't have to support their sponsors. Because at the end of the day, eh, maybe Liberty isn't really that important to you. But then, why are you listening to this show? LibertyMemes.com. Adding new memes every day and rapidly approaching their 1,000th meme. Visit them today at LibertyMemes.com.
0: Welcome, Agent Sovereign. Please put on your headset to enter virtual reality.
1: I'm ready. Hit me. Now
0: entering Unimatrix Zero.
1: Ah, I love this place. Secret community away from the...
0: Hey, Agent Sovereign.
1: Hello, who are you?
2: I'm Pixel. I like this place you've built in VR. Encrypted, secure, and very private. No one from the corporate system to see us or tell us what to do.
1: And if you're here, you must be friends with...
2: (laughs) Oh yes, I've met the other girls, Brian. But I'm here now because we have another mission. We need to hack into the new system. They're about to...
1: Tell me on the way. Let's get out of Unimatrix Zero. And don't worry. A quick hack solves everything. HackSec. It is time for HackSec, where we cover the stories that have to do with hackers and security. Uh, and, of course, hackers are heroes on this show. Uh, but this one... This story, oh boy, I, I, I teased this one a couple weeks back. Uh, this is definitely has to do with the security uh, side of things, no question there. But before I get into it, I do want to say I, I didn't get to mention it in the last segment. If you want to see what I think like the future of, you know AR, uh, that's augmented reality and virtual reality, or some people call it MR, which is mixed reality, whatever. If you want to see what that's going to look like, I, here's something you can check out. Because I think there's a company who's actually been on the leading, really on the leading edge. And I wouldn't be shocked if they have some kind of dark horse product uh, planned. But they've been involved in VR since the beginning. I mean, for for 20 some odd years. And that company's Nintendo. And I think if you looked at... Uh, Metroid prime, there's the whole trilogy there, Metroid, the Metroid prime trilogy. If you go to YouTube and just like watch a walkthrough or whatever, and you see the way that Samus Aran, the way she interacts with the world and all that, you are getting a prime look at what I think, you know, what, one of the, the futures of technology will look like, uh, you know, with AR and VR and all that, uh, just, just, you know, watch it for like five minutes and you'll see what i mean like she looks around she'll scan things and a bunch of data will come up and it's all local too that's that's the other thing like it's all built into her suit i mean there's so much nintendo i people don't realize this like the reason nintendo is so cautious with the with with their metroid series i think it's because they put so much thought into uh, well, other than the game Other M, but they put so much thought into how Samus Aran interacts with everything. Uh, it, it's really like it, I think it's a full-on glimpse look into the future. It's the most realistic uh, sci-fi, of course, in a video game form that you'll ever see anywhere, uh, and it's exciting to watch. Like it, it's really, it, it's really cool. You know, I, I love those games. <laughs> so, and, and like I said, Nintendo they've been doing this forever. They had the uh, you know the the Virtual Boy. So they know a thing or two about how all this works. And I think, they, I think they've mapped it out. I think they, they have brilliant people there. There's no question there. And Nintendo. Uh, and I think they've already, you can get glimpses of the future just by checking out some of their first party games. Uh, or at least, the, you know, the more serious ones uh, that, they, that they develop. And I mean, they've been ahead on, the Wii, you know, was so far ahead on so many things. <laughs> You're, the day is coming where Nintendo is going to, as, as was once said, are going to take over the world again. Uh, and, and, you know, they're kind of in an in-between moment right now, but that, that's not going to be around for that, that in-between moment is not going to be a problem for much longer. Um, but speaking of a problem that's coming and that may be an issue for, uh, p- potentially a long time, because unfortunately, as I've talked about on Sovereign Tech, uh, recently, uh, these things, uh, are pretty popular even amongst, uh, anarchist types. And of course I am an anarchist, uh, we'll, we're, we're going to talk more about anarchy later on in the show, <laughs> uh, but, uh. Yeah, this is um, this is this is something. So uh, let's break into this. And it's coming from the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, Whatever. They they do good, good news stories. I'm not saying I agree with their uh, ideology in any way, of course. So let's read this. Uh, Microsoft says its software can tell if you're going back to prison. Oh, boy. (laughs) Let's read it in a scenario that seems ripped straight from science fiction. Microsoft says its machine learning software can help law enforcement agencies predict whether an inmate is likely to commit another crime by analyzing his or her prison record. In a series of videos and events at policing conferences, such as one on October 6th, that's 2015, at, at MIT, Microsoft has been quietly marketing its software in cloud computing storage to law enforcement agencies. Yeah, I could stop right there. Uh, f- fuck you, Microsoft. Like, Really? God damn it. Uh, I mean, not to say that there's any, you know, that any of these other tech giants aren't also playing ball with law enforcement agencies or whatever, uh, but to want to directly help these fuckers. Man. Reading on. It says the software could have several uses, such as allowing departments across the country to analyze social media postings and map them in order to develop a profile for a crime suspect. The push also includes partnerships with law enforcement technology companies, including Taser, that's the stun gun maker, uh, to provide police with cloud storage for body camera footage that is compliant with federal standards for law enforcement data. And I'm sure, Stallion breaking in, I'm sure that that compliance Allows for hey, could you delete that just in case that cop gets a little too rough with some black guy? I guarantee that's part of that. But in a more visionary or possibly dystopian approach, the company is also expanding into a growing market for what is often called prediction policing, using a using data to pinpoint pinpoint people most likely to be at risk of being involved in future crimes. Now there's a real irony here because as I understand it, Microsoft was pretty instrumental because what are you, what are you hearing here? This sounds like minority report, right? And ironically, it's, I mean, (laughs) Microsoft was, as I understand, instrumental in helping minority report with its various UI systems and all that stuff. Now they're helping create the whole goddamn world of it. And what a shock that right now there's a television show based on minority report. I don't want to get that conspiratorial to say that we've got some predictive programming going on here, which is the idea that you, you know, through entertainment or whatever, you show things off to people to get them used to it before you enact it in real life. But yikes. Let's read on. Predictive or preventative. These techniques aren't really new. A predictive approach preventing crime by understanding who is involved and recognizing patterns in how crimes are committed builds on efforts dating back to the early 1990s when the New York City police began using maps and statistics to track areas where crimes occurred most frequently. Quote, predictive policing, I think, is a kind of a catch-all for using data analysis to estimate what will happen in the future with regard to crime and policing. End quote, says Carter Price, a mathematician at the Rand Corporation, which is a corporation... Stallion breaking in that does get accused of doing predictive programming quite a bit. What a shock here. Uh, let's read on uh, in Washington, who has studied the technology, quote, there are some people who think it's like the, the movie Minority Report, like we just said, in which an elite police unit can predict crimes and make arrests before they occur. But it's not. No amount of data is able to give us that type of detail End quote. Scholars caution that while data analysis can provide patterns and details about some types of crimes, such as burglary or theft, when it comes to violent crime, such approaches can yield information for police about who is at high risk for violent victimization, not a list of potential offenders. Quote, thinking that you do prediction around serious violent crime is empirically inaccurate and leads to very serious justice issues. But saying this is a high risk place lets you focus on offering uh, social services. End quote, says David Kennedy, a professor at John Jay College of Cri- Criminal Justice. In the 1990s, he pioneered an observation-driven approach that worked with local police in Boston to target violent crime. After identifying small groups of people in particular neighborhoods at high risk of either committing a crime or becoming a victim of violence, the program, Operation Ceasefire, engaged them in meetings with police and community members and presented them with a choice. Either accept social services that were offered or face a harsh police response if The committed if they committed further crimes, it eventually resulted in a widespread drop in violent crime, often referred to as the Boston Miracle. Honestly, that sounds like a bit of a Sophie's Choice to me. Well, you either accept you, you, you quote unquote, accept we either force upon you social services or we force upon you violent police response. What kind of an option is that? I'm sure people, you know, started shaping up because they were scared to death. But a society built on stallion here, a society built on fear is not, that's not, that's not a society. That's not a way to live. That's not freedom. Fear is, has, has no part anything to do with freedom. Reading on the Operation Ceasefire Program, Professor Kennedy says, was never meant to be predictive, but using data to discover patterns of how crimes are committed and map where they occur has been more successful, especially for lower level crimes. A few years ago, Cynthia Rudin, who teaches statistics and focuses on machine learning at MIT, received an email from a member of her department asking for help using data analysis to aid the Cambridge police in catching burglaries. The email originally came from Lieutenant Daniel Wagner, the department's lead crime analyst. After meeting with Lieutenant Wagner, she was surprised when he presented her with an academic paper suggesting one method for analyzing the crimes using a computer model. Then he said, He thought it wouldn't or then said he thought it wouldn't work. Quote, I read the paper. It was a really dense mathematical paper, says Professor Rudin. Uh, I couldn't believe this guy. So he shot he shot my idea down and I went back to the uh, I went back to the drawing board and everybody liked the like that idea. End quote. Her eventual approach, using machine learning learning tool to analyze the department's existing records and analysis to determine if there were uh, particular patterns in how burglaries were committed, proved successful, resulting in a long-running partnership. The software, which Rudin and doctoral student Tong Wang called Series Finder, works by identifying, identifying patterns based on information such as when and where a crime occurred, how the burglar broke into a home, and whether the victim was at home or on a vacation at the time. Quote, luckily the Cambridge police uh, department had kept really good records so the computer was learning from what analysis had already written down and quote quote it's not like the computer was off on its own being artificially intelligent it was supervised learning when we ran series finder it was able to correct mistakes in the database and it said that isn't right and quote Series Finder supplements uh, the work of human analysts, she says, by identifying crime patterns in minutes that might take an analyst hours of poring over records and databases. Quote, it would be nice if the computer automatically said there's a pattern here. There's a pickpocket here every Tuesday and Thursday. How many crimes uh, how many crime series were not caught because those patterns weren't detected? We'll never know because humans just aren't that good at sorting through larger sets of data. End quote. Professor Rudin was able to use grant funding to make her research possible, providing the Cambridge police with access to Series Finder for free. The goal, she said, wasn't to commercialize the software, but to showcase the impact of machine learning to solve real life crime problems. But commercialization has been inevitable as companies such as PredPol, which... Uh predicts crimes using software originally developed to forecast earthquakes. And Microsoft have expanded in a bid to attract more businesses from law enforcement agencies. Now, Stallion here, I want to break in on that. Uh, PredPol, you got to wonder, because the, the software originally developed to help forecast earthquakes was probably funded by what? The U.S. government. But does the U.S. government really want to predict earthquakes? Or was it, you know, or was somebody perhaps at DARPA, Thinking, OK, well, let's try and see how it works in the natural world, and then maybe we can use that to to perhaps control these humans a little better. I wonder. Just putting that out there. I'm not saying I believe that, but just putting that out there. Reading on with the story in one video tutorial for law enforcement agencies, Microsoft makes makes a sweeping claim using records pulled from a database of prison inmates and looking at factors such as whether an inmate is in a gang, his or her participation in prison rehabilitation, rehabilitation programs and how long such programs lasted. Its software predicts whether an inmate is likely to commit another crime that ends in a prison sentence. Microsoft says its software is accurate 90 percent of the time. Quote, the software is not explicitly programmed, but patterned after nature. Jeff King, Microsoft's principal solutions architect uh, who focuses on products for state and local governments, says in the video. Oh, yes, Microsoft has a whole department designed to work with uh, state and local governments. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, Quote, the desired outcome is that we're able to predict the future based on that past experience. And if we don't have that past experience, we're able to take those variables and then classify them based on dissimilar attributes. End quote. Ooh, 90% of the time. Okay. Uh, Rudin has also been working on using machine learning to predict uh, recidivism, but she pitches her research differently. Quote, they don't just give you probability. They give you reasons. You can use them for various decisions like bail or parole or social services. Uh, Ultimately, uh, end quote, she says, ultimately, the goal isn't profit, she adds. It's developing tools that allow police to use data in ways that may help improve outcomes of the justice system. In its marketing materials, Microsoft has touted that the uh, has touted the impact of its cloud storage software, particularly on making police body cameras, long controversial for police departments, easier to use. So, now stay breaking. So, is this why OneDrive, why my OneDrive got knocked out of unlimited storage? Because oh shit, we got to give you know body cameras for police. Uh, you know, as much storage as possible because I mean, everybody's committing a crime every day. What, what's that old saying that there's a, or not? It's not a saying; it's a statistic that, uh, that you know. There's there's three fel. Uh, each person commits three felonies every day. Yeah, I guess I can't have unlimited OneDrive storage because the fucking cops need it. Reading on. The Oakland Police Department, for example, has begun using Microsoft's Azure cloud storage service for its body cameras. In Oakland, body cameras have reduced officers use uh, of force by 60 percent since they were adopted in 2009. The department says the police credit the cameras with stopping officer involved shootings for the last 18 months, though there have since been two shootings this summer for which the department released its body camera video. Quote. Predictive policing will never replace traditional law enforcement, but it will certainly enhance the the effectiveness of existing police forces, allowing for an informed and practical approach to crime prevention rather than merely making arrests after the fact. While, end quote, while predictive policing is still in the early stages, and that was coming right from Microsoft, uh, some say the data it generates could have a mixed impact. While the information could improve police transparency, it has it could also lead to other problems. "Quote: If police departments had access to social media accounts, and it turned out uh, that crimes were being committed by people who liked a certain kind of music and a certain sports team, it could lead to certain kinds of racial discrepancies." End quote. Says Dr. Price of the uh, who's a researcher at Rand. Quote, it's a useful tool, but it should always be done with the idea of keeping in mind how this will impact populations differently and just sort of being cognizant of that when policies are put in place, end quote. But Kennedy, the criminology professor, says that for violent crimes, using data that shows crime risks to influence policing actions could have devastating consequences. Quote, people have been trying to predict violent crimes using risk factors for generations And it's never worked. I think the inescapable truth is that as good as the prediction about people may get, the false positives are going to swamp the actual positives. And if we're taking criminal action on an overwhelming pool of false positives, we're going to be doing real injustice and real harm to real people. And that's the end of the story there. Yes, the obvious takeaway from all this is, and I already said it, what the fuck, Microsoft? And, you know, in fact, recently I talked about prediction markets. We talked about Augur and others. And I had said that, Microsoft, yes, they, they have a prediction mark they have prediction market software, but they were more or less just using it uh, you know, they, they used it in an interior fashion, and that they used it to help, you know predict who was going to uh, you know win elections and whatever else. And that, that's all that they were doing it now doing with it. Now I was told by a Microsoft employee that that's all that they did with it. So this is kind of new news to me, and I'm really, really fucking pissed off about it. I mean, for, for a Silicon Valley company, I, and what, you, you think Microsoft's the only one? I want to make that real clear. You think Microsoft's the only person that's, that's schlepping off their software to work with, you know, state and local governments? Of course not. Google's doing it, I guarantee it. But there's a key thing here. There's a key takeaway from all of this is that, yes, a lot of this stuff had been used in the past. It had been a part of, of policing duties and all of that. And most of the time, I know they say, oh, there's like there's this ninety percent rate. Uh, no, it's really never worked. No matter how what data they were trying to use, I mean whether there's a computer getting plugged in with the data or not, it didn't work. And in fact, it create like I the point is so beautiful that gets brought up is that the amount of false positives are going to be astronomical and it's going to make any of the real positives meaningless. Now the key takeaway from that is the fact that we talk about, and look, you've got to understand the the marketing material you got. This is where usually I have the problem with a lot of technologies, not to say that I have an issue with, look, if people want to make prediction markets, knock your fucking cells out. In fact, maybe literally you will. Because those will probably turn into assassination markets, right? If you want to do that, fine. But the way these people market it, like this is going to change the world. We're going to stop every terrible occurrence. We're going to predict every terrible occurrence. Where this is going to be you know, this is going to bring peace to the planet and all this stuff. And believe me, a lot of people at Augur have made that kind of shtick. We already we talked about this a few episodes ago. I did a complete debunking that Augur is nonsense. It's bullshit. Okay? And this proves the point, is that you are going to end up with so many false positives that it all becomes meaningless. And not only that, let's say that that 90% figure was accurate. Let's say that that's real, that, oh yeah, this, this helps this helped prevent 90% of crimes or whatever the case may be. Let's say that that's true. So what? Those, those 10% people that you enact upon because of your prediction market, with your, your predictive policing, that, that, that other 10%, oh, well, you know, that's, that's just the cost of having a society. You know, some people get screwed out of this deal. No! There's no freedom in that. And if you're so hot on law, I say this often because for some reason people seem to fucking forget it. And I know it's on walls at other, uh, uh, you know, institutions in Boston in particular, because a lot of what we were talking about was happening at MIT. And that is, was it, Blackstone's theorem? Better that 10 guilty people go free than one innocent person suffer. Where the hell did that leave the legal system? When did that leave the legal system? That is the cornerstone of, quote unquote, the law of Western civilization. Whatever the fuck Western civilization means. And you're going to rely on that? And hell, you know what? Fine. Let's go all the way. Let's go all the way with ripping Microsoft to bits. Just yesterday, I had a Microsoft, I have a Windows 10 machine. And I had a, I'm a gamer, so deal with it. Okay, And I had an update come through. I can't right-click anything without my entire desktop erasing itself. Literally, and I'm not the only one, I googled the problem, a lot of of people are having this issue, and you're going to trust police departments and legal issues, predictive policing and all this stuff, with that fucking company? Are you kidding? Because we're not just going to have blue screens of death anymore, we're going to have blue faces of death from people getting hung because of some dumbass company out of Silicon Valley. Or even some dumbasses like Auger thinking, oh yeah, prediction markets, this is going to help the world. This is going to help the world. No, 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 no. It doesn't work. People have tried this stuff for years. Predictive markets, nonsense. Predictive policing, nonsense. You get false positive. And if you get one false positive, the whole thing's a sham. The whole thing needs to get thrown out. Because, like we said... Better that 10 guilty people go free than one innocent person suffer. That's freedom. I'm amazed. I'm amazed that people think that this is somehow a good thing. Oh, yeah, well, this is the the market speaking here. The market's going to come up with these great solutions uh, to stop, you know, to stop crime and all this stuff. Uh, These these private insurance companies, when we get to the libertarian paradise, they're going to have these prediction markets and they're going to know what the bad part of towns are, you know, and and all this shit. It's like, wait a minute, there's going to be bad parts of town. How is that libertarian paradise? you have to keep the human element involved in this. They're trying. I know they said that, yes, they realized you have to keep the human element in it. And that's a, that's a quiet admission on their part because I think they're looking for the time where they don't need the human element. And when you do that, you lose what literally humanity prediction markets,
3: garbage. I'll be back with more
2: time now for 90 seconds on sex with Dr. Paul.
3: What is gonzo porn? Well, gonzo is a type of porn that's extremely intense, in-your-face, and more hardcore than most hardcore. It redefines low-budget and over-the-top, and it's filled with enough close-ups to give a gynecologist a headache. It has even more sex and less of a plot line than other kinds of porn. Now, the actors are often brash, highly enthusiastic, and definitely playing to the camera. The camera angles frequently from the male point of view. Even more than having a front row seat, gonzo porn makes you feel like you're one of the actors on the porn set, at least visually. The word gonzo is associated with the journalist Hunter S. Thompson. Not that Hunter S. Thompson ever made porn. Now Thompson created gonzo journalism, where the reporter ends up being a main character in the story. Now, along with having a particular fondness for firearms, Mr. Thompson had a very warm spot in his heart for alcohol and psychedelics, such as mescaline and LSD. So any porn that's called gonzo definitely has an edge to it. One of the concerns about gonzo porn is its disrespect and increasing violence towards female actors. In fact, gonzo porn has been credited with taking disrespect for women to a new level. This in an industry that's not exactly known for its kindness to women. For more,
2: visit 90SecondsOnSex.com I'm in that was almost too easy
1: easy more like you're very talented
2: (laughs) thank you agent Sovereign. i hear you're very talented yourself
1: oh pixel flattery will get you everywhere with me what do we have
2: blockchain transactions smart contracts the usual nonsense for my wait a minute what's this
1: that looks like
0: important messages
1: Woo! It is time for Important Messages, where I cover the questions that get sent in to me through the various channels available. Of course, there's tons of them. There's BitMessage. Uh, there's there's the email address, BrianZomiOfflineGames.com. You just go to ZOG.Ninja or SovereignTech.com. There's a Contact Us tab. You hit that, and you can get in touch with me. You can even get in touch with me completely anonymously. I don't need to know who you are. Don't you want to? Know? Well, no, I I do want to know you because you're a listener. But I don't, I don't, you know, I don't mind knowing you anonymously. <laughs> That's my point. So, and I've got a ton of questions uh, to to get through this week, and we're gonna we're gonna tone things down a little bit. Um, let let's start one off with uh, let's see. Someone asked the question that they were wondering what my if I were to update because it had been a little while. Uh. I, of course, run the Dark Android Project, which you can find at darkandroid.info. And that's all about setting up devices, mobile devices, uh, that will allow you, you know, to buy something inexpensively, if you want it to be inexpensive, that you can easily throw away. But that is what, what's called DAPS compatible, which is Decentralization, Anonymity, Privacy, and Security. And mainly, you know, a lot of this concentrating on the anonymity, privacy, and security. This is a device, uh, you know, that you could you could have that where you can feel like, OK, you know, you, you kind of you take on another identity mentally and you use it wherever you go to do whatever business you need to do that you want done anonymously. And then you can just walk away from wherever you are and, you know, go on with your life as you normally would. Uh, that's kind of the idea. But you can go to darkandroid.info to read out more about that. Now, there I recommend tablets. Uh, a lot of people and I don't you know, this is OK. A lot of people say, well, I love what you're talking about, uh, but I want to you know, I just I want it done in a smartphone. And the reason I don't recommend smartphones is because I think SIM cards are inherently insecure. Now, and and of course, there's a ton of proof around that. It's not just me thinking it. Um, the thing here is that. The only reason really that I talk about, because if you read the dark Android blog, I'm recommending phones a lot of times. I'm recommending tablets a lot of times. And that's what this person's asking for. Some of my my updated recommendations. Um, The main reason that I say don't do that is because I don't want. I mean, you can't imagine the amount of email I get where people are critiquing something I say and they just they're not understanding what I'm saying. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying that I can't be wrong and I've been wrong in the past and I've, I've mentioned it during this segment if I'm ever wrong. OK, uh, but my point being is to go there is so I don't get the email from somebody saying, well, what about the SIM card or what about this? Or what about that? You know, and it's just like, no, I'm going at the absolute base level of what you need to do and we'll build up from there. So there's nothing wrong with taking, you know, what I call dark Android principles and putting them into a smartphone package, you know, and using them that way. Uh, that, that's totally, totally fine. So uh, so the person asked, you know, what would be my top three phones right now? My top three tablets right now. If someone wants to do a dark Android setup of some kind, you know, to whatever varying degree, just to where they could have privacy and anonymity and all that stuff. Or they could load cyanogen mod on it, you know, right out of the gate. I uh, you take a pick. So uh, top three tablets. Now, the person recognized, obviously, they follow my work and I appreciate that. Uh, love you for it. Um, the top three tablets, the Nexus 7 2013 32 gig, no SIM card, is still the top dark Android tablet. And you can get that. God, I've seen places selling it for like 100 bucks flat uh, as late. And I I think that's fine. And also, you know, something else, I don't mind if things are refurbished. I think refurbished is actually a great thing. I know, uh, you know, at tech companies that I've worked at, when we did refurbs, you got a better product than the the initial one that went out. Uh, So don't be afraid to buy refurbs. I'll I'll, I'll tell you, that's a a great simple tech rule, and uh, I don't want to say it's good for the environment, but. You know, using older tech is just fine and dandy. You know why? Just throw all the stuff in the junk heap if we don't have to. Okay, you don't have to be an environment environmentalist for that to be a good idea. Um, but top three tablets, yeah, the, the Nexus Seven 2013 edition is still the top of the heap, um, and the Xperia was the compact Z3 tablet. Uh, that's still way up there. the The one that I would add to this is the 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 ZenPad, the Asus ZenPad S 8.0. Uh, that, that is amazing. And it's only like 200. Well, the better model is closer to 300. Um, but that's probably the best, uh, tablet I think out there right now. And it's actually, in some ways it's better than the Nexus seven and it's better than the, uh, than the, the Sony, uh, the Xperia because it's using an Intel processor. So if you really wanted to, you could throw like Ubuntu on there because it's using, you know, it's using an Intel architecture instead of an ARM architecture. Uh, so that that's that's a good one to recommend. And while you wouldn't be able to toss mod on that right out of the gate, um, I think eventually that will be a reality to where the ZenPad and also like the ZenPhone, we'll talk about phones here now, uh, you know, we'll we'll have a, a mod able to go right on that. So so those are probably my top three uh, that I would put out there. I've talked about the the, the Shield K1. Uh, that's probably one that's going to have a lot of open source uh, stuff built for it. Uh, but really, probably the Zenpad 2 there, the 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 S 8.0 is 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 really really a great one. And of course the Nexus 7 is great. And I've gotten a lot of a lot of people have emailed me, said they grabbed the Nexus 7, and they're just amazed at how sturdy and you know the damn thing is. And it really is. It's a great tablet, might be the last great tablet. Um as far as phones, I would recommend if you if you want to put cyanogen mod on it right now, the best phone in existence is the 2015 Moto G. Uh, they they already have CyanogenMod for it, and I think it, it's a waterproof phone. I mean, it's just got a lot of advantages. Um, I believe it has the removable battery, it has the micro SD card slot, and if you you want to get the one though that has the 16 gig of onboard storage and the two gig of RAM, you absolutely want at least two gig of RAM in whatever you're buying. Uh, so that that would probably top the list as far as something that you could throw CyanogenMod on right now. Um, I've gotten emails from people. I use the ASUS Zen phone, not ZenPad, Zen phone two. I don't use the laser edition or any of that, just a straight up Zen phone two. I got this this phone for a song. I mean, I got it so cheap. Um, and I bought a refurb. And uh, I mean, and it's great. Like this this phone does it all. It has four gig of RAM. It has the Intel processor uh in it. So I could there's people that that put Windows 7 uh on on Zen on Zen phones. It's <laughs> it's amazing. So yeah, w- with top three phones, it would probably be the the Asus Zen Phone 2. Uh, the 2015 Moto G, and the person in the email mentioned the the S6 Active. That's a tough one to get your hands on, but boy, if you can, that's great. You, you bottom line, you don't want a phone that that has a fingerprint reader on it. I think that's a security nightmare. It's been proven to be a security nightmare. Uh, so, so you know, don't don't go for that. Um, but you know, at, at the end of, the, I mean, that's the really only like high end uh, phone. That, that I would really recommend. I mean, if you really want to, you can go with like the Nexus 6P or something, but those all have those voice co co-process, voice co in them. Uh, and I, I, those are again, another security nightmare. That's just not necessary, especially if you're not going to be using Google now or anything like that, which is supposedly why all that's built in. Um, so I'd go with the Moto G. Uh, Cause you can put CyanogenMod on that right now, or the Asus Zenfone Two because it's, it's really inexpensive. Uh, but it is not as far as build cheap and you're getting a great processor. And the four gig of RAM is just I, I think that's re- that's amazing that a phone has four gig of RAM, <laughs> especially for the price, because there's computers. You can't even buy a computer that has, you know, that much, uh, you know, that high spec uh, inside of it for, for that price. Uh, so anyway, that that's that's that uh, got kind of a, a funny, a funny <laughs> email. Asking now, of course, you know, people here, you know, that I am the man in triple black. I always wear all black. Of course, it's it's an anarchist. uh, uh, You know, it's very common among anarchists. It's a symbol of having no country by wearing all black. I've been wearing I've been dressing this way for years before I was even an anarchist and it's for other reasons. But anyway, everything I own is black. (laughs) Stephanie and I were out just the other night and talking with someone. And and Stephanie said, it's like, in case you hadn't noticed, like everything Brian has is black. So. Um, but someone emailed said, is your car triple black as well? <laughs> well, right now I don't, I don't own a car. There's not, there's really not a need uh, for me to do so. And, but when I did own a car, uh, not all of them were black because some of them, like I, I had a, a Ford Expedition that was an Eddie Bauer edition. And you could only get that in uh, a certain color. It was like this dark blue, but I definitely bought the darkest one I could find. Um, but I had my favorite car that I've ever owned, which was my 1973 Ford LTD. Uh, it wasn't the wagon model as much as I would have loved that. Uh, but that was, oh yes, that was as triple black as you could make a car. Uh, I mean, the rims were black. Everything was black on that baby. It was, it's a, it's a beauty. Maybe at some point I'll share some pictures of that, uh, on social media. That was, uh, I was really Sad, sad to get rid of it, but uh, but it was an awesome, awesome car. Uh, so anyway, yes, uh, if I did have, you know, if I were to buy a car, which I couldn't dream of doing right now, but if I were to buy a car, uh, yes, I would absolutely it would, it would totally be triple black. Um, Let's see. Someone uh, emailed me. They said they, they did a full, you know, speaking of Dark Android, they did a full setup where they have open keychain. They've got canine mail. They've got all this stuff set up on their phone. They're ready to go to do encrypted messaging and encrypted emails and all that. But then they asked, what should they use as far as an email service? Should they go with Tutanota or Proton Mail? Wouldn't that be, uh, you know, like, is there any reason to double down like that? Uh, no, there isn't. Because, I mean, once you're using PGP, just just use any email address. Uh, but what I recommend, and it's the one I've been recommending, actually, since uh, since the very first episode of Sovereign Tech um, is GMX. And that's at GMX.com. dot uh, com. They give you effectively all the features that Gmail or Outlook or any of these others or Yahoo Mail uh, would offer you. Um, but they're not one of those big companies and all they do is mail. That's all they do, which is good. You know, it's good to have a specialist company. Uh, and they give you unlimited emails storage and all that. And actually, the service GMX works very well with MailVelope. So if you wanted to import your keys, you know, uh, browser side and use, uh, use a browser extension like MailVelope, um, GMX is a great option for that as well. And so that, that is the route I would go, um, would be to get a GMX, uh, address. And they're not going to go anywhere anytime soon. So it's a German company. I think they might have a couple servers in Kansas, but most of their servers are are off site or, you know, are are out of this out of the United States, which is a very good thing. Um, So go at GMX as far as an email. I hope that answered your question there. Uh, let's see. Someone also asked about Cubes OS. Uh, I you know, asked if I would do a review on it. And actually, they said some very kind words is that they, they very much trust me in my opinions uh, in this space on whether or not Cubes OS would, uh, like we mentioned, dApps. Is it is it fully dApps? Is it open source and all this stuff? Uh, yeah, Cubes OS is great. <laughs> I mean it's really, really great. Like it is one of the best uh Linux distros on the planet right now, uh in my opinion. The woman that 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 uh that develops it, she's amazing. Um I actually I'd love to have her on the show at some point. I may I may get that set up. Um But Cube's OS, what it does is it it and I know Gentoo can do this as well. I, I'm well aware of that. Uh, but it it sandboxes like everything you do, like everything you do on on, on within the within the operating system. Uh, is sandboxed off, like a web browser is in one sandbox. Uh, you know, Audacity would be in another sandbox. And so that way, you know, none of this stuff, if any of, the, any of your software gets compromised, it can't affect the rest of the system. It's an ingenious idea. Uh, and I have played with it, and it's great. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. You, it, it takes a good amount of setting up to do. Okay, if you could do it in Gentoo, you, you, can, you can make it in Cubes OS, I, I assure you. Uh, but I, I think it's phenomenal. I, did, I talked about it. Boy, it was, it was Software of the Week a long time ago. Uh, but, uh, but you know, I don't blame someone for not knowing that I, I really don't, I don't remember everything I've talked about in the past, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, cubes OS rock solid. Uh, but I don't want to go into too much further with that. I'd love to have, uh, the developer on in the future. She's great. And, uh, you know, we could, we could really get into the nitty gritty of it, but if you want to use it, yes, you, it has my full support, my full, uh, you know, appreciation. Um, then someone else had another question. Uh, they had heard about, uh, a couple of different uh, bits of, of well, not, not all software, but but a couple of different services. Um, there was Devasive from Future 10 Central, and the other was BlackCert. Now, I'll go into both of these. Uh, first off, with with BlackCert, let's talk about that. What this is, this is, uh, you know, they, they do SSL certificates, and they're supposed to do, you know, very good ones that are very secure uh, and, you know, they, they try to do it in an anonymous fashion. It's meant to be like like the privacy provider uh, for SSL certificates. Um, as far as my opinion on them, they, they don't have enough reputation for me to just be able to say either way. Uh, I would, frankly, as much as there have been little issues with these uh, recently, I would probably go with Let's Encrypt because you don't you don't really have to pay anything. And it, it does effectively the same job. So as far as what I looked into with BlackCert, I don't see any advantage to paying for them as compared to, like I said, just using Let's Encrypt. And, of course, you can go to Let's Encrypt.org or Let's Encrypt.com and and check that out. Uh, So that's my thoughts on that. I didn't see anything wrong with BlackCert. I just there wasn't enough information about them, you know, and they don't really have like a a history behind them. So I'd be a little concerned about that as to where Let's Encrypt is being you know, operated by uh, was a fight fight for the future and an EFF they're kind of the same thing. Uh, there, certainly, you know, there's plenty of people that have that have gone through, you know, picked through that code. And so, you, you know, you can use that with a lot more confidence um, as far as devasive. So Future 10 Central is run by uh, and I, I've talked about this software in the past, uh, but Future 10 Central is run by John uh, McAfee, who is an interesting character, to say the least. He's certainly, you know, anti-government in many ways, uh, but he <laughs> he. You know, he's he's kind of out there <laughs> in some ways. He certainly lived one hell of a life. Um, devasive, you know, and all, I, I. You can use stuff from Future Tense Central. Uh, I it's another case where I, I don't really know all the developers behind it. And and like like what's exactly going on there. I don't I don't really see anything wrong. They tried setting up another uh, service. What was it was it called Cheddar? Where it was supposed to be like a like a Telegram competitor. Uh, of some kind, uh, so some of the stuff, I mean, maybe in the future they'll, they'll develop more. I didn't really see to where, you know, to where it was worth setting up like devasive. I think that that's supposed to tell you like what warn you when things have new permissions and all that. Uh, it's really a product from a time that Google wasn't very open about the permissions that, that got asked for with products or, you know, by apps, that has changed recently to where you do get more detailed information about it. Uh, not that you want to trust Google, but it's about the best you can get. And divasive and can only go so far. So you can use it, but I don't, I don't think it's something that's really that, necessarily that helpful. So uh, I hope that answered that. Anyway, this is Sovereign Tech. I'll be back with more. From Big Finish Productions, blake Seven. The classic audio adventures.
0: I'm taking Liberator in on manual. We'll be in teleport range in two minutes.
3: What the hell was that? Information. Liberator has been attacked. You don't say.
1: Put up the force wall. Confirm. Message to all ground commanders.
2: Initiate the final phase. Let's crush these rebels once and for all.
3: My name is Avon. Kerr Avon.
2: Kerr Avon.
1: Our hostage arrives, but you may be unnecessary. As a hostage, it's nice to be
0: superfluous.
1: You can go to Blake7.com to find more of the new adventures of one of science fiction's greatest masterpieces, Blake Seven, at Blake7.com. <laughs> You get all the data.
2: I got all of it. It's finished once we get this uploaded.
1: That's if we can get away from those blockchain drones in time.
2: Don't worry, I've got it covered. Over
1: here. I love a woman with a motorcycle.
2: Get on. A bike is always my first choice.
1: First choice. It is time for first choice, where I cover stories that get sent in to me. You get to choose what I talk about. How about that? Of course, I kind of pick it out, eeny meeny miny moe. Um, and this story, th- this is this is more of a, of a topic uh, to bring up. I mean, there's there's some bits of stories here that I'm going to read, and of course, you can get, find all the links. Uh, for what I read from in the show notes, episode 153, this is uh, you can go to SovereignTech.com and you'll find it there and you can you know read a lot of this for yourself because I can't always read the entire story. And this is certainly a case where I'm not going to read uh, the entire uh, story. But what this what this person asked me about is what are my thoughts on what's known as uh, useless jobs? Or bullshit jobs, I, I think is the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, I mean, they're considered useless jobs, but the the actual term that gets used is bullshit jobs. And this is a let's say a theory by David Grabier, who wrote uh, uh, Debt: The First Five Thousand Years, which is an interesting read. I don't agree hundred percent with his conclusions or even what he lays out as far as history, uh, but it is an interesting read. Definitely gives you a lot to think about. Uh, there's no question there. And so, as far as like what you know, do I think this notion of bullshit jobs is is a reality? Is viable, etc. Well, why don't we read a little bit of of from Graybeard's own words on what exactly that is? We'll read what he considers to be a solution, then we'll just kind of break it down from there. Uh, and so, this is from his original article that he did. I think this is in maybe two thousand two, something like that. So it's not like this is necessarily a new idea. Um, but uh, here we go. So in the year nineteen thirty, is from David Graybeard. John Maynard Keynes. I know everybody just oh, Keynes is getting mentioned. <laughs> uh, Keynes in the the Austrian school of economics is known for uh, being the great destroyer of the economy <laughs> you know, around the world, really. Uh, but anyway, let, let's let's read what Graeber has to say. Um, John Maynard Keynes predicted that technology would have advanced sufficiently by centuries end that countries like Great Britain or the United States would achieve a 15 hour work week. Now he's not saying a 15 hour work day. He's saying that people would only were stallion breaking in here. People would only end up having to work 15 hours a week. And this is true. Kane said, said this, uh, reading on there's every reason to believe he was right in technological terms. We are quite capable of this and yet it didn't happen. Instead, technology has been marshaled. If anything, to figure out ways to make us all work more in order to achieve this, Jobs have had to be created that are effectively pointless. Huge swaths of people in Europe and North America in particular spend their entire working lives performing tasks they secretly believe do not really need to be performed. The moral and spiritual damage that comes from this situation is profound. It is a scar across our collective soul, yet virtually no one talks about it. I'll read a little bit more. Why did Keynes' promised utopia, still being eagerly awaited in the 60s, never materialize? The standard line today is that he didn't figure in the massive increase in consumerism. Given the choice between less hours and more toys and pleasures, we've collectively chosen the latter. This presents a nice morality tale, but even a moment's reflection shows it can't really be true. Yes, we have witnessed the creation of an endless variety of new jobs and industries since the 20s, but very few uh, have anything to do with the production and distribution of of sushi iPhones or fancy sneakers. So what are these new jobs precisely? A recent report comparing employment in the U S between 1910 and 2000 gives us a clear picture. uh, And I, I note one pretty uh, much exactly echoed in the UK over the course of the last century. uh, The number of workers employed as domestic servants in industry and in the farm sector has collapsed dramatically. At the same time, quote, professional, managerial, clerical, sales and service workers, end quote, tripled, growing, quote, from one quarter to three quarters of total employment, end quote. In other words, productive jobs have, just as predicted, been largely automated away, even if you count industrial workers globally, including the toiling masses in India and China. Such workers are still not nearly so large a percentage of the world population as they used to be. But rather than allowing a massive reduction of working hours to free the world's population to pursue their own projects, pleasures, visions and ideas, we have seen the ballooning not even so much of the quote unquote service sector as of the administrative sector. Up to and including the creation of whole new industries like financial services or telemarketing or the unprecedented expansion of sectors like corporate law, academic and health administration, human resources and public relations. And these numbers do not even reflect on all those people whose job it uh, is to provide administrative, technical or security support for these industries or for that matter, the whole host of ancillary industries uh, that only exist because everyone else is spending so much of their time working in all the other ones. These are what I propose to call bullshit jobs. Now, so that's the basic that's the basic gist um, that that paper goes on. But that's the basic gist of what he's talking about here. Um, And his salute, you know, he blames, obviously, capitalism, you know, or he you know, he blames all these these different setups in that his idea is, is that the financial system has been set up in such a way that everybody becomes, you know, wage slaves and everybody can't get you know, you can't get to a 15 hour work week because if people all did only work a 15 hour work week, then the people at the top, because David Graeber, for those that don't know, is also credited uh for being the guy that came up with. We are the ninety nine percent. And so he has this entire kind of I'll, I'll say conspiracy theory, but I don't mean necessarily mean that in such a negative sense. But he has this entire conspiracy theory that you know, there's this one percent that sits on top that is kind of pushing the buttons and pulling the strings to make sure everybody just keeps on working. And but to keep everybody working, this one percent has created this system of bullshit jobs. That that's that's his overall his overall theory here. Now I want to read what he considers the solution to this, and then I want I want to break that down. Uh, and and here this is from a, a separate article saying what can be done about all this. Uh, right after my original bullshit jobs piece came out, this is Graybeard talking. I used to think that if I wanted, I could start a whole career in in job uh, counseling because so many people were writing to me saying, "quote I realize my job is pointless, but how can I support my uh, support a family doing something that's actually worthwhile?" End quote. A lot of people who work the information desk at Zuccotti Park and other occupations told that means like Occupy Wall Street uh, told me the same thing. Young. Wall Street types would come up to them and say, quote, I mean, I know you're right. We're not doing the world any good doing what we're doing, but I don't know how to live on less than a six figure income. I'd have to learn everything over. Could you teach me? End quote. But I don't think we can solve the problem by mass individual defection or some kind of spiritual awakening. That's what a lot of people tried in the 60s. And the result was a savage counteroffensive, which made the situation even worse. I think we need to attack the core, pro- core of the problem, which is that we have an economic system by its very nature uh, will always reward people who make other people's lives worse and punish those who make them better. I'm thinking of a labor movement, uh, but one very different than the kind we've already seen. A labor movement that manages to finally ditch all traces of the ideology that says the Work is a value in itself, but rather redefines labor as caring for other people. I think we we saw the first stirrings of that kind of movement during Occupy, obviously, you know, Occupy Wall Street. I remember being particularly struck with the We Are the 99% webpage. This was a page where people who supported the movement but were mostly too busy to actually take part in the occupations or assembly could contribute by posting pictures of themselves, holding up signs where they'd written out their life situation. Uh, and so, you know, he's he's calling for what, he's, what he says here is a call for the, the caring classes. He wants to create jobs that can, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of ironic sort, sort of what he's talking about here, because he's saying that there's these bullshit jobs and how do you, you know, what do you, what do you do about this? You know, how do we get rid of these bullshit jobs? And his solution strangely is we need people to create jobs or, you know, stay within their jobs, but kind of create these like offset caring jobs that help educate people about bullshit jobs. <laughs> and so, it's, it's, which is it's kind of, a, I think there's an irony there. Okay. Now, in many ways, I actually agree with David Graeber that there are bullshit jobs. There's tons of them. And part of that comes from a system of hierarchy. Okay. You know, it comes from hierarchies within even corporate systems. Okay. I don't know that I believe that there's just this 1% corporation That's pulling all the strings. I think there's corporatism, meaning that there's government and corporations working together, perhaps, uh, you you know, to to create this this really like strange economy that we have right now. You know, this is what they call a mixed economy, right, because it's not really a free market or a freed market. Um, And so I think Greybeer misses the point. He misses where the real issue here, where all of these bullshit bullshit jobs come from, where all these administrative jobs come from, where all these, you know, like say the HR department, let's say that the HR department is a bullshit job. I would in many ways agree. Why is there an HR department? Because the government is telling you, you need to have insurance. You need to have this. You need to have that. The government creates OSHA, which says you have to do this, you know, to make sure that the, you know, everything within the job is safe and all this bullshit. I mean, it all comes, you know, all of these bullshit jobs come from reactions to government laws. And the only way you're going to stop bullshit jobs from being a thing is by getting rid of government in your life, by non-compliance. And you know, and it's important to bring up, okay. And we'll maybe we'll talk about this in the next segment. That even anarcho-capitalists are on board with the idea of a 15-hour work week. Okay, uh, Kevin Carson talks about this. I mean, lots, of, and he's not an anarcho-capitalist, but I'm saying lots of. Most people in anarchist circles, regardless of what flag they're waving, agree that, yes, in a freed market, people would not be working all day anymore. The eight hour day would not exist. It'd be like an eight hour week instead. And there is, you know, it is strange. Like, I mean, yes, there are people who create. Take the dishwasher. The dishwasher was introduced on how many decades ago? And yet, for some reason, you'd think that that would save people so much time. But for some reason, people are still just nonstop working. It didn't actually save the time. You know, and and that's that raises a great question. Why the fuck didn't the dishwasher, you know, give people so much more time? Why didn't washing machines really give people so much more time? Why why are they just working more and more and more and more? And I don't know that there's any grand conspiracy like Greybeer wants to lay out. Okay, I mean, because some of like in some degree, the market that we have today, which is not a free market, will respond to this. Like, I mean, the whole, you know, the yuppies in the 80s and all this stuff, uh, you know, they they went the way of the dodo because the market cannot handle that much top heaviness. I mean, there, there are uh, corrections do occur even in our mixed economy, fortunately. OK, so so these bullshit jobs, you know, they they, they would not exist in a world without government. That's a fact. Um, Greybeer has an interesting point that if you lay upon people this notion that, well, you have to pay your debts, that you can get away with incredible injustices against humans, against other human beings. Like you can force any tyrannical system upon them. If you just say the magic words to them, you got to pay your debts. And I think there's some truth to that. In fact, there's a great book by an uh, uh, anarcho-capitalist, Doug French who was the head of the Mises Institute for a while and was a direct student of Rothbard. He wrote this great book called Walk Away. And in that, he's saying, look, the government screwed you with your houses because he's talking about, you know, like the housing crisis. The government screwed you. Screw them. He said, don't pay those goddamn loans. You know inside of that system, just walk away from it and and accept those consequences. Now that's more of a solution to get away from a lot, you know, from this economy that creates these bullshit jobs. Is again non-compliance. So I think Graveyard's right. These bullshit jobs do exist. The market as it exists today does not always correct for it uh, as to where normally it would. Um, I don't. You know, there's kind of this push for well, we you know we should be living more austere lives. Uh, You know, so that way we don't have to work the six figure jobs uh, and all this stuff. And I I don't know that that's necessarily a solution. I think there's something for, you know, working outside of that. And really, I mean, you know, online entrepreneurship is is solving a lot of this problem in the first place, because now, you know, technology has finally empowered uh, the ability for one person to get rid of all the middlemen and to have all the tools, you know, a lot of the tools and means of production, at least in the digital realm. Uh, for you to use. So the real answer here is, yeah, you know, this this corporatist system, you've got to stop complying with it. Uh, and I think now via the Internet and other things, you can actually you can do that, but still make uh, a lot of money. And I think also, you know, if you create these small intentional communities that have these kind of principles in mind, you know, that knows the nature of the beast and all that, I think you can create microcosms, miniature economies that with today's technology really can provide a lot for everybody. And everybody can have their little specialization or whatever, and everybody can do their thing. And there will be no bullshit job within that, within that. And you will still be able to, you know, uh, uh, trade internationally due to networks, you know, online networks and all that. Uh, You know, things like Bitcoin really, really empower a lot of that for you to have, you know, your own currency, your own money uh, that doesn't require you to play within the system at all. Uh, The technology is really here for these bullshit jobs to come to an end. That technology to get away from, you know, the ugly economy that, that allows for this stuff to exist is now here. But people, I think what needs to happen is the real solution here is to not comply with it. And the only way to do that is for people to get together in. And I mean, you don't have to do like a free state project where there's, you know, 20,000 people. You can do it with 20 people. You can do it with 10 people, five people. You know, create, you know, micro, micro markets, you know, micro freed markets. And you could live this up and you could get away. I, really, I think you can get away from the entire system. Or at the very least, you know, you have far more control of, you know, your own pay and your own job and, and all this stuff. You take services like, like Fiverr and some others, even though Fiverr, there, there's issues with that. But the idea in and of itself that, you know, you can, you can schlep yourself out there. To people that need your services, uh, really solves a lot of this. I think creating a caring class. Well, I'm big on empathy. You know, I don't know that that, that that's that's going to solve things. So really, the only way we're ever going to educate people is by showing them what free markets can look like, and that needs to be done in small community forms.
3: Hey, Got an energy spike. Ah! Launch. Ah! In the third age of mankind.
1: An age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity. It is our last, best hope for peace. It is Babylon Five. All fighter
3: squadrons, launch! Return fire! Well, Freedom!
0: Watch Babylon Five.
1: Babylon Five is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon Five.
0: Pixel and Agent Sovereign, welcome to Munimatrix Zero. Thanks, computer.
2: So, Brian, looks like we have the whole place to ourselves.
1: We do, actually. Did you have something in mind to do?
2: Well, this is virtual reality. I thought maybe we could.
1: Pixel, you look... I love VR.
2: Come here, Brian. Mm. Uh. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh fuck yes yeah.
3: mm. Mm.
1: The climax It is time for the climax. Woo. <laughs> I love these new intros, uh, boy. If you haven't heard, you know, go back to like episode one one forty eight and back. If you hadn't heard the the ones previous, <laughs> because, damn, they're always so good. I do. And I make them myself, and I'm amazed at myself. Well, not entirely by myself, of course. I have uh, just just amazing women that 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 help me out. That I'm so so happy for them. Uh anyway, oh boy. I just got a look. Uh, <laughs> someone just gave me quite the look. Uh, I love it. All right, anyway, uh so I want to real quick we're, we we kind of have a shortened um climax here. And of course, the climax is where I could talk about anything. I talk about movie, TV show, uh product or a topic. And this week it it certainly is a topic. Um and someone wrote in I I'm, I'm going to read this email. I could have done this for listener uh you know for or for important messages, but I decided what the hell, you know, let, let's, let's do it right here. And it's, Hey Brian, uh, the other night on free talk live, which is a show that actually I I co-hosted for two years, uh, Mark and Ian got it. They're the main hosts of the show. uh got into discussing again, the use of the word anarchy slash anarchist and whether it is worth using it over say libertarian or voluntarist. Uh, I understand the reasoning behind why they feel it is not useful, which is the common misconception of the word uh, being the biggest reason, you know, stallion breaking in meaning like that people think of it as uh, you know, Molotov cocktail throwing, you know, black clothes wearing, well, we do wear the black clothes, but or at least some of us do anyway. Um, and more people actually have said they started wearing a uh, triple black because of me. And I'm, I'm really I'm honored by that. Uh, and of course, you know, it's it's historical relevance to anarchism. It's not just me. Uh, but I usually disagree. However, Ian said something along the lines. I'm reading the email here. Ian said something along the lines of people ruling themselves in a free society versus having no rulers at all. I thought that kind of made sense since anarchy means no rulers. And in a free society, people would really be ruling themselves. Does that mean anarchy really isn't the word to describe a free society? Uh, I really don't want to let it go. But that kind that point or that kind of that point kind of has me thinking about it a lot. Curious how you would respond if you were in that conversation. Thanks, Stallion. Uh, yeah. So this is. <sighs> I'm going to also answer kind of a long time question that I've had on this show because a lot of people wonder, cause sometimes I speak, it's like, well, you don't like the word capitalism. And it's kind of under the same auspices that, uh, you know, the word capitalism is an insult to, to market ideals, uh, created by Karl Marx himself. Uh, so it's not meant to be a positive thing towards markets. It's meant to insult them. And I am definitely, you know, fall under, if there's one term you can certainly apply to me, I am a market anarchist, uh, But, you know, as far as like the term anarchy saying, well, you rule yourself. Oh, boy, this this gets into such a such a big topic. Um, And I don't think initially when I read the email, I thought maybe Ian and Mark was saying it because I didn't listen to the episode that it was. Maybe they were saying something like, well, people will choose. They may want to choose people, you know, that that could rule over them, like like perhaps under anarchy, they would choose somebody who would be the head of the town and all this stuff. Uh, So how's that anarchy? Uh, Well, that that wouldn't be anarchy, obviously, you know, if there are. Um, But if the idea is is that you don't rule yourself. uh, Yeah. See, what I think is happening here is like no one ever had had kind of the you're you're having a mixing of languages. Okay, if we're going to get that fine tuned with the word anarchism, which the word anarchy does mean, you know, it doesn't mean no rules. It means no rulers. Okay. If we're going to get that fine tuned, like the, the idea of rulers is, I mean, that, that's an English term that carries a connot that carries, carries various connotations, uh, as to where anarchism would, you know, be more referencing like My point being is that in the Greek, the term rulers would even in and of itself take on a slightly different form that would be very clear on the fact that no other person could dominate, you know, you know, could could control you. OK, so like it'd be it'd be inherent in the word as to where if you just do this like straight, you know, Greek to English kind of thing, then it sounds like, yes, OK, in English, you you know, you the word ruler, uh, you know, means that you're ruling over yourself. And so but if anarchy means that there's no rulers, uh, then do you see what I mean? There's degrees of separation. You're losing something in the translation that anarchy makes it that the term anarchy makes it or anarchia, perhaps uh, more accurately, makes it very clear that you're talking about somebody else. Not you. Uh, As to where you know, absolutely anarchy. You know, maybe maybe anarchy more. If one did a finer, you know, not not finer as in like finer point necessarily, but a more accurate translation, perhaps it would more mean self sovereignty, which we use the word sovereign. Hell, that's my last name. (laughs) Okay, we use the term sovereignty, uh, not saying that we are kings over someone else, but that we are effectively you know sovereigns over ourselves. You know, over and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, but that's but that in and of itself is saying that there is no domination outside of you. Okay, so I get the argument. It's a clever one, but it's something that is is playing games with two completely different languages that, uh, you know, you're losing some data. There's a data stream missing. Okay, (laughs) you you couldn't you couldn't get all the bits into the other word. Uh, That's that's kind of my response to that. Is that just that the translation doesn't really work? So I think, you know, I get it that anarchism, you know, does carry a really negative connotation. But unlike capitalism, which also carries a very negative connotation, uh, the negative connotation wasn't initially meant to be there. As to where with capitalism, it was meant to be negative from the get go. Uh, take the word libertarian. This is amazing. You know, libertarians, the original people that use the word libertarian were communists. If you go to Europe and you say libertarian, they think you mean communism. OK, so I don't like using the word libertarian either, even though I will often use it for shorthand because, in, in, you know, my my audience is largely U.S. based, not entirely, but it's U.S. based. And that has a meaning here. And, you know, people go for it and whatever. Uh, but I don't like to use the word libertarian. I'm not a communist. Why would I use that? Uh, so, yeah, we can get into this argument and maybe new words need to be made. And, hey, you know, I'm totally open I mean, I had somebody boy, this was years ago. Somebody said, wow, stallion, you got to come up with your own term for, you know, for your, you know, your, your ideology and all this. How about incendiarism? That's that's what they came up with. And like, no, 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 no. I don't want my own ideology. This is not a this isn't a cult. This is nobody needs to follow what I'm saying. Okay, I'm running a tech show here. Let's calm down. Uh, But it did raise, you know, kind of a larger issue. You know, I just noticed there's not a whole lot of actual anarchist voluntarist podcasts out there anymore. That are absolutely no borders, no, no dealing in politics, even jury duty. You know, none of that bullshit Uh, that that's becoming a very rare thing. Uh, So there aren't that many anarchists out there anyway, (laughs) as far as what, you know, what anarchism, you know, full on entails is that not even dealing with the rulers uh, as much as you don't have to unless a gun is being pointed at your head for it. Um, So but I'm open to like volunteerism was a good word. Of course, the guy that originally came up with voluntarism specifically said that it means no voting whatsoever. But I challenge you to find a voluntarist that doesn't that 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 doesn't think uh, or, you know, that that says voting is a bad idea anymore. Most of them go ahead and vote and even run for fucking office. It's mind boggling to me. So any word can get, uh, you you know, can can, can get taken over by perhaps uh, elements that that aren't going by its original meaning and all this stuff. Uh, anarchism is a great word because it's so old and, it you know, it has such a long tradition. And most of that tradition really isn't violent. Most of it. Uh, so, you know, and as far as like, like, you know, some people ask me, well, you know, where is your school of anarchism come from and all that? I mean, if you really want to get into that shit, you know, adding stuff on. I mean, I guess the closest thing is I'd fall under maybe the egoist anarchist camp. Uh, you know, market anarchist, thats fine with me too. But whatever—that's—you that, that, get into all this semantic stuff, and it just gets crazy. Anarchism has a meaning; it's not a negative meaning. It was never a negative meaning. It was never initially used as an insult. So run with it. As to where all these other terms have either been co-opted or they were negative from the get-go. Why use them anyway? Hope that answers the question. Carpe Lucem, everybody. You I'll just see you on the
0: experienced other side. sovereign tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's sovryn techcom and connect with us there. Find links from today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to The Evolution.